buenas noches, buenas tardes, buenos días o a la hora que nos vean. Esta sí que es una transmisión especial en inglés. Porque, pero miren, de hecho, lo nervioso que estoy. No es, un, es una transmisión especial porque va a ser en inglés. Miren, miren esto. Es la hispanocatolicidad, pero ahora en inglés. Vamos a tener con nosotros, tenemos con nosotros a don Eugene Michael Jones, quien ya está en, en, en nuestro estudio virtual. Eh, welcome, Mr. Eh, Eugene. Y nuestro amigo Daniel, y nuestro amigo también Edwin, principalmente Daniel, a quien le doy un abrazo y las gracias públicamente. Ah. A Daniel como a Edwin, que nos van a acompañar principalmente a Daniel, por este desafío que implica entrevistar a un tremendo autor como don Eugene, eh, y para no estar como mí, tú, yo, ser Jane Tarzán <ríe> y evitar todo ese tema, eh, vamos a darle el pase de inmediato a don Daniel eh, Pem para que nos eh, ayude en esta entrevista eh, con el doctor Eugene Michael Jones. Eh, solo decir que él es un eh, autor eh, tradicional católico y que nos interesa muchísimo su visión, sabemos que tiene seguidores en la hispano-catolicidad, y justamente el, el tema, el rótulo de la, de la conversación de hoy es presente y futuro de la hispano-catolicidad. Deseo agradecer desde ya, y espero que Daniel le traduzca a don Eugene Michael Jones, nuestros agradecimientos, porque él contestó inmediatamente, es una persona muy humilde, y desde ya le doy el agradecimiento a nombre de Matice y del Instituto de Estudios Hispanoamericanos Benito Feijó. Sin más, Daniel, por favor, todo tuyo. I only will translate uh, Dr. Jones that uh, from René that he is very grateful uh, in, in representation of uh, all of us in Matices that you are with us and that you uh, have been very responsive at the moment that we ask for you, so we are really pleased to have you here. Welcome home. I will start with a, 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 a short uh, biography of, of Dr. Jones, and uh, and next to it, we will start with a, with a, with the interview of the conversation, right? So uh, Dr. Eugene Michael Jones is from uh, South Bend, Indiana, in the USA. Um, he is an American writer a former professor, media commentator, and the current editor of Culture War magazine, formerly Fidelity magazine and Fidelity Press. His main ideas are about logos, Catholicism, the melting pot and religious identity, and cultural wars based on, the, on a theological conflict in between societies and throughout nations. Remembering this Donoso Cortez idea that theology is the most extensive level at which political problems must be interpreted. About this, his work, the most relevant books that he has written are The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, Libido Dominandi, and The Rise of Logos. Three, these three books have been translated also in Spanish and is available with uh, his personal translator, Luis Álvarez Primo from Argentina. So I, I don't know if you want to extend something else uh, about the, this introduction, Dr. Jones. Just, just that uh, you can order the books by going to uh, fidelitypress.org or to culturewars.com. I'm, I'm referring to the Spanish edition of the three books you mentioned. They're available now and uh, you can order them at fidelitypress.org or culturewars.com. Thank you very much. So. 
let's let's begin. Um, I think that for uh, the understanding of, of Michael Jones' thinking and perspective and Catholic traditional Catholic perspective, it's very important to in, uh, introduce one concept that I I, I believe is uh, present in all his works, even if it's not uh, is is implicit on it. And it's the concept of logo. So the first question I will uh, um, say is, is this one. What is logos and how is this is developed in its fi finest expression by Catholicism? Well, logos is the uh, Greek word for speech, for word. And what I realized when I was studying Greek as an undergraduate is that you need five pages in the Greek dictionary, five pages of English equivalents to use to which uh, to give you some understanding of what the Greeks understood by logos. So you, you can't understand it simply by translating it as word. And this uh, leads to a problem, which is basically the Gospel of St. John, which begins by saying, in the beginning was the word. I don't know what that means. I've, I've read it my entire life. I don't know what it means. But if you study Greek and you say in the beginning there was logos, in other words, there was an order to the universe. There was a God who created this order. There were all of these things taken all together. Then suddenly it makes sense. Suddenly it makes sense. And suddenly what you realize is that the gospel of St. John was probably the most important turning point in human history, especially those four first sentences of the Gospel of St. John. In the beginning, there was Logos. Logos was with God, and Logos is God. En arche en ha Logos, kai Logos en prostheon, kai Logos en theos. That took, combined, uh, basically, the two strains of human history, the two important strains of human history up to that point. It combined the Hebrew scriptures specifically Genesis, which begins with the statement, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. That's the Hebrew strain. And what St. John did was unite that with the Greek strain of thought, which was metaphysical. And so he said, in the beginning, that's a direct reference to Genesis, there was logos. In other words, an acceptance of Greek philosophy, of the achievement of Greek philosophy, as a manifestation of God's thought in human history, combined with the Hebrew part, which is the direct revelation of God to, to the Hebrew people. And he put them together, and that was the beginning of Christianity. It will be said that it's the combination of Jewish faith and Greek reason, right? I, I would say Hebrew. The Hebrew, Hebrew faith Hebrew. And, 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 uh, and Greek reason. Yes, it's a combination of faith and reason. And that is the essence of the Catholic faith. It is both faith and reason combined. And there's no contradiction between faith and reason. Faith is the completion or the fulfillment of reason. Uh, faith is in things that we can't understand from a human perspective, that God had to speak to us directly about. And if you go to, uh, to one of the most significant events in the history of uh, the world and Christianity, you came up with the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity is implicit in the Hebrew scriptures. It's implicit in the Christian scriptures. But you need Greek to understand it, to make it explicit. 
And that was, the, it took about 300 years of debate in Greek, in Greek, in the Greek language, in order to come up with a formulation of, uh, of what the Trinity is. It ultimately came down be between the, 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 the uh, this, this different, difference between two Greek words, homoousion, one in being, and homoousion, just one letter difference, which is like something like, like in being. That was, could not have taken place uh, without the Greek language. The Latin fathers were involved in this debate and they simply could not participate if they didn't know Greek. So this shows you that God has accepted natural reason. There was no revelation to the Greeks. The only revelation went to the Hebrews, but God honored the universe. He Logos suffuses the universe, and God honored that by allowing the Greeks to participate in the fusion of these two streams in the, in the founding of Christianity. Okay, thank you very much. Understanding this relationship uh, that remembers uh, for us uh, as Hispanics, this idea of uh, from uh, the philosopher uh, Gustavo Bueno Martinez, God saves the reason. What is the relevance that the Spanish Empire and the Hispanic civilization takes on this ex expansion of logos of, of Christianity? This also impl implies that our world history has linked always uh, to a religious component with Islam in, in the so-called Reconquista and then uh, with the English and Dutch Protestants. So uh, I don't know what, what you want to talk about this. Well, the, the, uh, the relevance of uh, the Spanish Empire came in uh, for, for around 1492. The, the, uh, the Spaniards had expelled the Moors from Spain. Uh, they expelled, 1492, they expelled the Jews. They consolidated their Spanish Empire and then they could project it outwards. And so this was the age of exploration. And so uh, they uh, discovered the Americas. Columbus discovered the Americas, and immediately the Spaniards were over there uh, trying to annex this to their empire, but also trying to understand it and trying to reform it. All of these things together. I, I was in, when I was in Buenos Aires, there's a statue of the, uh, a tribute to Hispanic culture, and it's, it's uh, conquistadors and it's Franciscan monks. This, this Spanish, by the way, this uh, statue, by the way, ha has been desecrated by the, the uh, revolutionaries that are trying to take over uh, Argentina. And the hands are cut off. I, this is, I, I think, a Masonic uh, symbol of something or other. But the hands have been cut off. But what you had here was Spain arriving in the New World, uh, and they had to arrive with a military presence. Because the New World, if we're talking about Mexico, was uh, under the, the, the boot of a ruthless group of people known as the Aztecs who had conquered the neighboring tribes and would uh, worship uh, their god, uh, Quetzalcoatl, by taking captives from these tribes and marching them up a pyramid and cutting their hearts out. It was a brutal uh, uh, culture based on human sacrifice, uh, totally evil, and only military power could conquer it. And that's what happened. One of the greatest stories in human history is the story of Cortez uh, and the conquest of uh, Mexico. Uh, a man who shows up with uh, basically 140, I think 140 Spanish soldiers and takes on an empire of millions, obviously with the help of the conquered ethnic groups who did not like the Aztecs uh, anyway. They came for gold 
Okay, that was part of the motivation. Uh, they took the gold and the gold in some destroyed some of them when when the when the whole operation trying to deal with Montezuma went bad and the uh, sat, the Spanish conquistadors had to get out of Mexico City in a hurry. They crossed that causeway and the Aztecs had pulled up the bridges and the conquistadors jumped into the water and they were loaded down with gold and they sank right to the bottom and body piled upon body until they walked over. And uh, Bernardo de Diaz says that when they got to the shore, there wasn't one man without wound, wasn't wounded. And at this point, Cortez he says he's going to go back and take that city. And he did. He conquered uh, Mexico. This is part of divine providence of sometimes God has to use violence to bring the gospel to people because there are some regimes that are so wicked they can only be driven out by uh, military force. And that was the case in Mexico. At that point, you have a, a, a situation where nobody knows, the, the, the native people don't know what's going on. There's no movement one way or the other. They can't decide. And then suddenly there's a miraculous event. It's the appearance of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And at this point, there is a mass conversion on the part of the Mexicans, and they become what Vasconcelos calls the, the cosmic race. This is a union of the European and the Indian in a totally new type of race that has all of this optimism that you can feel uh, with these Franciscan missions all up and down the, the California uh, coast. That was destroyed. Mm -hmm. this, 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 was, this was a regime, this was a, uh, the providence of God was, was destroyed by wicked men. It wasn't, it didn't happen immediately in Mexico. It didn't happen immediately, uh, but it happened by the 18th century and the group that destroyed it were the Freemasons. And we're talking, the, the crucial moment in Hispanic history at this point is uh, the Jesuit reductions in Paraguay. The Jesuits had played an enormously important role in the colonization of the Americas. They were all, the French Jesuits were in Quebec. Uh, they would, they learned the native language of the Indians. They were incredibly heroic. They would go off with the Abnaki Indians for the moose hunt, which meant that you had to wait till the snow was waist deep so that they could kill the moose. They would then roast the moose and the Jesuit would lie on the floor. It's a, it's, 20 below zero outside, and it's 100 degrees in the tent, and the Jesuit is down there with his mouth under the flap of the tent trying to get some air that doesn't have smoke in it. They, they concluded that uh, the, one of the Jesuits, French Jesuits, wrote back to France and said, uh, these people spend their lives in smoke and eternity in flames. And that was why they were brought to that, where they came there. The, the real development, though, in terms of culture came in Paraguay. The Jesuits arrived in Paraguay. You can't imagine a, a group of people who have never met each other, and the Jesuits go in with the kind of confidence that the gospel inspires, and they learn the language. They learn Guarani. They write a Guarani dictionary, and they write a Guarani, Guarani uh, uh, grammar. And to this day, because of that, Guarani is one of the official languages of Paraguay. But more than that, they, they start to teach these people how to move out of the hunter-gatherer existence that they lived in into a, a, an agricultural culture and then a manufacturing culture. 
So they begin by, you know, uh, they because in many ways, I don't, it, it's, it's difficult to teach the gospel to hunter-gatherers because it has all these parables about the seed growing and, and they don't plant seeds. They kill animals and they eat the animals. And so by within, within a two, a two generations, these people who were hunter-gatherers when the Jesuits arrived are making violins. And at that point, they created an economic system that was an alternative to the encomienda system that the Franciscans basically had, had adopted. In other words, it was an alternative to slavery of the Spanish sort in the Spanish empire, and it was an alternative to the capitalism that the English were promoting uh, throughout the world uh, at the same time in their battle with Spain. And the Freemasonry was basically an English, the English covert warfare that was supposed to destroy Catholic uh, Europe. Uh, pro primarily Catholic France, the free Masonic lodges had arrived in France and they were undermining the Bourbon monarchy. It was psychological, cultural warfare against the Catholics. And one of the manifestations of it was basically the, the Duke, uh, de, the uh, Marquis de Pombal and the Duke de Choiseul, a Portuguese and a Frenchman, go down to Rome and they say you have to uh, uh, suppress the Jesuits. The first pope resisted Benedict XIV was a strong man. He resisted them. His successor comes in and he caves in. And at that point, by suppressing the Jesuits, he allow he he paves the way to the French Revolution. And more importantly, from our perspective, the entire Masonic takeover of South America, including Mexico. <laughs> and at that point, the culmination of this is uh, Plutarco Cayes. The, the uh, uh, taking over Mexico, the, the war against the Cristeros. Trotsky shows up in Mexico. He's with Frito Callas and Diego Rivera. It becomes a magnet for all these revolutionaries. And at this point, uh, South America, Mexico has never recovered. They have yet to recover from the uh, Masonic takeover of their cultures, which basically stifled all of these Catholic initiatives, including the Jesuit Catholic alternative to capitalism. Yes, the, the, the first country that recognized the USSR actually was Mexico. Yes. So um, you, in, in your expositions, in your books, you uh, continuously uh, quote uh, St. John's and Augustine or Aquinas. And uh, I have a question related with, with Hispanic tradition and it's related uh, with this. Is there any theologians, uh, philosophers, or writers from the Hispanic culture that you really admire or that were relevant in your own formation as a Catholic? There, there were. There, there, Cajetan was a, was a Spaniard. These were the, the main interpreters of Aquinas after, after his death. But to answer your question, no. This is something that I had to discover on my own and late in life. Octavio Sequeiros is a friend from uh, Argentina. His father had written reviews of my books. He showed up at a uh, Rockford Institute seminar and started asking about uh, Hispanic, Hispanic culture. No one knew anything about it. And he came to me and I had to say, I don't know anything about it either. My whole orientation toward European culture, may, maybe I think I'm half German, but it was oriented toward uh, German philosophy. It went from uh, Aquinas, okay, now he's not a German, but uh, uh, the Aquinas' struggle with nominalism, uh, 
uh, nominalism completely uh, uh, eclipsed Thomistic philosophy, took over Thomistic philosophy and eclipsed Thomism in the period after his death. William of Ockham went to Germany. I was in Munich, uh, where had uh, dinner at the Franciscan monastery where he died of the plague in 1345, okay? And he took over the German mind. And the main manifestation of the German mind was Luther. The main I'm saying the main manifestation of nominalism in Germany was Martin Luther. And this is, is my, has been my orientation uh, because that's simply the way I was taught. I mean, my, my inclination, I ended up living in Germany. I, I, I can speak fluent German. And then when I came back to do my graduate work, that uh, entered into, into my thought as well. So in terms of my personal development, no. It, it, this whole uh, idea of the development of Hispanic thought uh, is not, it, it was not part of my growing up. Actually, it's not that different from in Hispanic nations because German Romanticism is also very present in, in our academia. It's more common to know uh, Hegel or Nietzsche or Marx than uh, a Spanish uh, thinker or philosopher, like Benito Jerónimo Feijot, that is the, the philosopher uh, that we uh, have studied in this place. But, but well, uh, and in this case, we have thought several times about the, the idea in, in this uh, black legend against uh, Christianity, there, there is like a, a, I don't know if it's correct to say it like, like that, but a three-hit punch uh, that uh, attacks uh, medieval ages, like the, the idea of that period like there are as dark ages, the idea of Catholicism, and the idea of the Spanish Empire. I, I, I don't know what do you think about this Cricket punch, if I can say. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I speak English, okay? The, the United States, English is the official language, and because we have uh, the American empire, it's become the lingua franca for the entire world. And if you speak the language, the thought patterns go with it. And so we naturally gravitate toward a kind of English understanding of history, even if we're Catholics. So I'm raised a Catholic, I'm speaking English in, in the United States of America, and there's this conflict. And so you unconsciously adopt concepts out of the, the black legend, uh, even though you're a Catholic. You unconsciously adopt the, uh, the ideas of Whig history because that's part of the uh, air you breathe and the pe people you study. And it's only after you get uh, uh, exposure to other parts of the world that you start to realize that that's, that's not the whole story. But Catholics, Catholic, let, let, let's put it this way, Catholic immigrants, um, I'm the child of immigrants. My one grandfather came from Ireland and my other grandfather, great-grandfather came from Germany. And they come over here and they want to be, they want to succeed in America. And the, now we have the Hispanics in the same position. When I, in 1992, I gave a speech in Los Angeles to largely a Mexican audience about Huntington's book called The Hispanic Challenge. The Hispanic Challenge is basically one of the WASP elite saying, how are we going to engage in the social engineering of Mexicans? Hmm. Now that we have this huge migration across the Rio Grande, it's unprecedented in American history. The only precedent that we can think of is what happened to the Roman Empire and the Germanic tribes crossing the Danube. 
because before the, this, all these people coming across the border from Mexico, you had to cross an ocean. My grandfathers had to cross the ocean to come here, and that means at that time it was hard to get back, and so you were stuck. But the Mexicans are like the Goths in the Roman Empire because all they have to do is cross the, cross the river, and it's much easier to cross the river. And they are crossing the river in huge numbers, and at that point, Los Angeles was becoming more and more, more and more Mexican to the point where there were certain areas where only Spanish was spoken. But uh, this was a challenge to the American ability to assimilate immigrants. They had never assimilated immigrants on this basis before. And now they, this, this, this was the challenge, and he was used, uh, familiar with social engineering. Social engineering was always used on Catholic immigrants in the United States of America. Uh, before after World War I, there was a, the triple melting pot, the melting pot pageant where the, 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 uh, the then the propaganda ministry, uh, Committee for Public Information, would have ethnic groups climb up into a big pot uh, in their ethnic costumes, and then the band would play the Star Spangled Banner, and they'd all walk out wearing bowler hats and suits. That was crude. But the, the intention never changed. You have to, the American empire has to turn people into Americans. I mean, I mean North America, citizens of the United States. That, that goal has never changed. The means to do it has changed. And it's become more and more uh, tyrannical over this period of time. But it's the same thing. After, after World War II in the United States, this group of people, the WASP ruling class, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, waged war against fellow Catholics in America. These people felt they had more in common with the English upper class than they had with their own fellow citizens in the United States because those people can't, they're Italians, they're Poles, all these people, they're completely alien. And so they waged war on these people. And I, the book I wrote about this is called The Slaughter of Cities. Uh, urban renewal is ethnic cleansing, which is basically flooding black people in from the south, the southern states, weaponized migration to break up Catholic ethnic neighborhoods. That is that is happening in Europe right now. Okay, it got tried out with, here. With, it's with happening Muslims. in Europe with Muslims. Right, but yeah, the, the the difference is in the United States it was fellow citizens, but they were black. And they, they, you know, you, you had this racial divide and they were, they were not Irish, I guarantee you that. And when they moved into the Irish neighborhood where I lived as a child, everyone left. Everyone left. And they moved uh, to the suburbs. The suburbs were new. They were a creation of the, after the post-World War II period. And at that point, you were no longer just Irish. With the Irish, you were with the Poles and the Italians and the, the Germans and all the other major ethnic groups, even in Catholic schools. So you, in a sense, lost your, your ethnic identity at that point. All of the things that happened in the United States are now happening in Europe. The weaponized migration and so on and so forth, it's happening now to destroy those cultures because, because it's a weapon. And so what they had to do in order to keep that ability, they had to convert turn the Hispanics into America, turn the Mexicans into gringos or whatever you want to call it, okay? And they did that through culture, cultural warfare, a lot of the same stuff. The music, the, the subversion of uh, Latino culture. Uh, one of the major uh, in, uh, agencies was 
Protestant churches, they are always vehicles of social engineering, uh, especially when they come to the United States. A lot of Mexicans who were born Catholic become Protestant because they think that's the religion uh, uh, that will make you uh, rich and powerful in the United States. That's what's going on now. I gave that speech in 1992. It's now 30 years later. And everything I said then is, is true. In, in a, uh, we've seen what has happened since that time. I, I, have, I want to remark this idea of language of religion that you have said in, in Spanish. We say, hableme eh, en cristiano, speak to me in Christian. It's this idea of how language is also related with, with religion and what you have told us about the idea of the, even if you are Catholic, if you speak English with all the, the cultural content that it has related with its Protestant roots, uh, has an effect, an effect on Protestant of Protestantization, right? So that's right, that's right, that's right, that's right. The 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 the, the, the crucial. It's difficult to understand ethnicity in America, because people come from all different places, and then after a, a certain amount of time, they lose their native languages, and so on and so forth. The 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 best explanation of ethnicity in America is called the triple melting pot, which means that after three generations you assimilate by becoming a Catholic, a Protestant, or a Jew. In other words, your religion in, Amer in the United States becomes your ethnic identity. That is going to happen. That, that, is, that makes it much easier, in a sense, for Mexicans to assimilate because they're Catholic and there's a big Catholic church here and it's, it's, painless. it's relatively painless compared to the situation in Europe or Germany, where I, where I lived for a while, when you have Muslims coming in to Germany, it's not easy. It's not easy. And what happened is that the Turks, in, to a large extent, retained a, a kind of isolated identity within... The no-go the, the, the no zones, right? The what? The, the no-go zones, the, these places that are... Like right, no-go zones. Yeah, we've, I was in Berlin uh, not too long ago, and there are certain areas where... I don't know whether you don't go there, but you better speak Turkish if you want to go there and, 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 and understand. I was in Berlin. I was in Berlin in 1975 when there was still a wall there, and I was watching television. And they had to make an announcement. There was a, a rabid dog running around Berlin, and they had it was in Kreuzberg, and they had to make the announcement in Turkish because the people in Kreuzberg did not speak German. No. Oh, uh, Professor yes. Jones, I have a question in the same uh, in the same line about this. Uh, how do you say the social engineering that are doing to Mexicans, for example, to convert him in Ringo? We have uh, some uh, Hispanic circles have a phrase that say the the true rival of Hispanic America is Latin America. And I have this, um, uh, for example, in a very practical way, uh, when I f uh, uh, complete a form, for example, to travel, there's some, uh, for example, a form to uh, uh, put your ethnicity. And they have, uh, for example, Latin, Latino. And I don't identify me as la Latino, for example, in this uh, MTV, a way that you have these Puerto Ricans or, no say, this hot, sexy in the beach. No, uh, for example, Chilean are not in that way. 
Now, and now I, I, my, my question is, what the, the for example, the Americans uh, uh, feel the difference between an Hispanic and a Latino, and why this Hispanic is not very well uh, known? Uh, for example, in the form, is not Hispanic, for example. You can put other or put nothing. So what are your uh, thoughts in, well, in that? In if, I, if, I have, if, if I have to fill out a form, I have to say I'm white. Well, am I white? I'm, I've, been, I've been through this. First of all, historically, what happened uh, after 500 years is basically the Protestant religions evaporated. They just disappeared. They are no longer the state religion in England, uh, or in, uh, they are technically in England, but not in Scandinavia. And as a result, these people lost their identity because that was part of their identity, being a Lutheran in Nor Norway, for example. Well, now they don't know what they are, and so they start saying, well, I guess I'm white. Well, white is a, a weaponized, it is a weapon of the oligarchs to basically destroy your identity. It's identity theft. And so it's the same thing. It's going to be the same thing with, uh, with uh, Hispanics or, or, or Latinos. They want to put them into some type of category that they will be able to manage. And they'll try and give you some benefits. They'll say you have benefits. But essentially, it's the same thing as being, as being white. Am I white? I think I'm, I'm Irish and German, if you want to know where I came from. If you want my current ethnic identity right now, I'm Catholic. And white does not figure into this. I tried to explain this to some white boys at the Sam Francis Memorial, and they got mad at me because they called me a race denier. But I'm saying white is a political category that gets imposed on people for political purposes. And that's, that's social engineering. That's the essence of social engineering. And they're going to draw the, uh, the people from South America into the same type of thing. You will be put in a box here so that they can manage you. And that's why they use terminology like this. Edwin, I don't know if you want to continue with another question or? No, uh, yeah, uh, just a comment because I, I think here or for in Chile, for, for example, the, this ethnicity don't have uh, much sense. For example, if, uh, po one political um, problem that is we have indigenous peoples or a, a lot of, of subcultures but uh, the, the, the people of, of Chile in particular don't uh, have this too much discrimination of that. Maybe are some kind of classism about uh, economic, economic status, but not about race, because all know that we are a mixer. And right. so the, we have a lot of problem with, with that, and I, I really feel that is more a political thing than uh, a real stuff. No, it, it's, you're, you're right, it is, because the, first of all, the United States has an empire, and what they, they decide here gets projected onto the rest of the world. And what happened in, after this World War II, there was uh, still this, we, they hadn't resolved this issue. The race issue was something significant. And they basically decided that race was the official category that they were going to impose on us. And the result was the civil rights movement, which you've heard about with Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King 
uh, came from the South. They did have a regime of segregation, of separating the races in the South because it was important, because that's where most people lived. But that was not the case in northern cities like Chicago. That was a different situation. And so when Martin Luther King went to Chicago, he tries to uh, agitate against a segregation that doesn't exist, which means he marches into neighborhoods, which he considers white, but the people there, they think they're Lithuanian. They don't think they're white. They came from Lithuania. That's not white. You're not white in Lithuania. And this, what happened is basically they have tried to impose this racial dichotomy on the American people, obliterating all of the ethnic differences and just saying it's either black or white because that's a form of control. And the main reason it's a form of control is you have conflict. You're constantly creating conflict between these two groups. This is the opposite of Catholic culture. This is the opposite of Mexico. The cosmic race was the marriage of the Hispanic and the indigenous population under the, the aegis, under the sponsorship of the Catholic Church, which brings about reconciliation. Now you have the exact opposite. You have an alien imposition of race on people. You prefer one group over the other. That leads to resentment. That leads to conflict. And that's the best way to rule people. Divide et impera was the rule of the uh, empire. And race is the best way they achieve that in the United States. Even in Mexico, uh, uh, actors like uh, Tenoch Huerta that have been in Hollywood have tried to establish this kind of uh, black Black Lives Matters agenda in Mexico. It doesn't have that impact, but the the intention for doing that thing also happens, and it's related with what Edwin says about the the all all the mixed up uh, races that we live along with it. So it's not such a problem. I want to say something else about this social engineering in Mexico, uh, and this is a topic that we have talked about uh, in some cases. There has been this uh, Summer Institute of Linguistics that started in the in the 1940s uh, to uh, translate the Bible by Protestant translators, by Protestant linguistic uh, uh, linguists, uh, to indigenous uh, uh, communities, so they can divide also. Uh, the population and and make a um, is related with an anti-Catholic uh, agenda that also happens in Mexico. This social engineering uh, related with with Protestantism and WASP also. Um, right. Yeah. But if I can interrupt here, the Protest <laughs> Protestant churches Protestant churches in South America were always a vehicle of Amer uh, United States imperialism. They were sponsored by Nelson Rockefeller. Uh, one of the main reasons to, to convert uh, people from South America to Protestantism is to get them to use contraceptives. That's why, that's why the Rockefeller family was interested in promoting Protestant sex in South America. To reduce the birth rate, that's always a form of uh, cultural warfare, the uh, population control which the Rockefellers promoted throughout the world, but Nelson Rockefeller promoted, especially in, in South America. That started with black communities in, in the USA, right? Also with black communities, Margaret Sanger uh, uh, was the creator of uh, Plan, it's now called Planned Parenthood, it was called the Birth Control League at that point. And she, with Rockefeller money, she created the Negro Project. That's the name of it. They're embarrassed. Planned Parenthood's embarrassed to, to, to use those terms. They don't like to talk about it. But it was called the Negro Project. And basically, the 
the purpose was to get black people to use contraceptives. The two, the two target groups in America were blacks and Catholics. They were, they were not using contraceptives. The, the Protestants were. The Protestants started using contraceptives in the 1920s, and they immediately became worried about differential fertility, the fact that other people were having more children. What, part of the research I did was go to, go to the Rockefeller Institute, and one of the letters there that I read was a letter from a man by the, who was on the, Rock of, the board of the Population Council which was run by John D. Rockefeller III. And he said, I don't, I don't agree with Planned Parenthood. I don't want our people going to Planned Parenthood. Why is it that the first people who line up at the birth control clinics are Protestants, uh, our people, when they should be having more children? We want more children from our people. It's other people. But it backfired on them. It backfired on both the Jews and the Protestants because they were the ones who were most likely to make use of contraception. And as a result, they started to go out of existence. That, that's simply what happened. Demography is destiny. Yes, and even most people ignore that even left wing have its, its eugenics its, its story in this in this matter. But well, that's a topic that we can uh, uh, explore later. Um, this, by the way, this is one of the dumbest things you can ever hear out of the mouth of a Marxist is he supports contraceptive. That, that is totally alien to everything that Karl Marx believed, but it shows you the anglification of the left that has taken place, the sexualization of the left, the anglification of the left, so that they're espousing things that are completely contradictory to classic Marxism, which believed that labor was the source of all value. The other side comes from Malthus, who said there's always too many people. He, he was based it on Ireland, the situation in Ireland. But uh, that's what I just wanted to add. No, 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 it's point. fine. And, and it, it, even in the USSR, USSR is related with this, the, this conflict between Stalin and the Bolsheviks. And he overcome and he uh, destroyed all these uh, birth control politics that Bolsheviks uh, tried to implement in Russia. And, and he, uh, Stalin... Uh, eliminate all that politics because he understands this relation between politics and, and demographics. Um, what do you consider? Uh, it's uh, all the topics that we are uh, uh, we have talking about. We maybe in, in later we will uh, take them uh, again. But, but I have certain questions that I, I want to, sure. to sure. make. Go ahead. Go ahead. What do you consider is re uh, relevant to attend using this? logical as logos not logos this logical perspective of catholicism uh, to different phenomena of daily life like uh, generally confined to triviality in a traditional perspective such as a, a publicity ar architecture literature plastic arts or cinema and how it emerged the need of doing this kind of interpretation because uh, in general uh, there is this idea that only the left wing uh, is focused on the on this kind of studies uh, and right wing is only uh, busy in economics and technology and so on right so you uh, try to understand um, pop culture just for saying something uh, in a catholic perspective perspective and i believe that is something interesting and it's not that common so i don't know what you want to talk about well, I, I started off being a journalist, you know, I mean, I started off being a professor and then I'm suddenly a journalist and I realized as a journalist, 
you, you write short pieces about something that is happening right now. That's why it comes from jour, today, you know what I mean? What's happening today? And I think that what you have to do if you're going to be a Catholic is you have to begin with something that is real because you can't relate to people unless you get talk about something that's real. This goes all the way back. It's, it's in my book, Dangers of Beauty, a fundamental change that took place in aesthetics uh, during in Italy during the Middle Ages when mm -hmm. Aquinas, Aquinas turned Plato upside down. In other words, Plato thought that art, you had to impose forms on matter and matter had no meaning. So you had to impose the triangle on a piece of stone uh, and then a rectangle and then a circle and then you had a temple. And Aquinas comes along, those people didn't know that there was such a thing as creation. We learned that from Genesis. Now, if, it's, if there's creation, there's gonna be logos in the world. Plato didn't know that. He didn't know there was a logos in, in matter. There's a logos in everything. And so Aquinas says, turn the whole thing upside down, and he says, existence calls forth essence. So it, because the world is created by God, because God is an artist, you can look at the world and the logos will emerge from it. And I think that's a, a fruitful way to begin any discussion. And I think any discussion with, with people who don't believe in you, like I've had a long conversation with the people in Iran. I've been going back and forth to Iran for 10 years. How do you talk to people in a completely different culture who are all Muslims? What do, what do you share with them? Well, that's part of what we learned from, from that discussion. But it's also part of the dynamic of Catholicism, especially if you're talking about the Jesuits in the 16th and 17th century. I, I was, when I was in India, I was at the tomb of St. Uh, Francis Xavier. His incorrupt body is there. You can see his body and there are Hindu women and there are Muslim women who come and pray to St. Francis Xavier, okay? What does St. Francis, he, first of all, he didn't spend a lot of time, this is in Goa, he didn't spend a lot of time in India. He went to Japan and he, what's he gonna talk about to the Japanese? It's not the Guarani Indians, it's not the Abnaki, they're not savages, it's a high civilization. What are you gonna talk about? What are you gonna talk about the Logos of the sky? Let's talk about astronomy, because we all look at the stars, and if, you, and, and if the Jesuits come up with a better calendar, well then you've got their attention. And then you can go from there and say, well, there's a Logos to human nature. And God is the author of, God is Logos. And so if you're, uh, you're approaching Logos, you're approaching God. This was a fruitful way of introducing the discussion here, of creating a discussion. Matteo Ricci went to China, did the same thing. Another Jesuit went to China, wrote a classic, learned Chinese. That's not easy to do. I wrote a classic in Chinese literature and was ready to make an appearance before the emperor, and he died. And at that point, the battle in Rome over the Chinese rights took the wrong turn and basically the people didn't, you know, they said it's idol worship and they sent some guy in to talk to the emperor who didn't know Chinese. Well, the emperor laughed at him and he said, I'm not gonna talk to this guy. He can't speak our language. If you can't speak your la the language of the people, uh, why should they listen to you? And I'm saying there's more than one way. Obviously we share a language, but there are things that we can simply look at as existence and begin the discussion there. That's why I think it's important. Okay, I, I don't know if you want to uh, 
also uh, talk some uh, about this part of um, cinema and architecture in general why also these topics that uh, mainly are uh, studied studied by left-wing uh, thinkers i'd be happy to talk i've i wrote a book on architecture i wrote a book on music I've written books on all of these topics because culture is important. And if you abandon culture, if you treat culture with contempt, your enemies will take it over and weaponize it. This is one of the fundamental transformations in Marxism that took place with Antonio Gramsci during the 1920s, where he said suddenly, you know, maybe it's not so important to take over the means of production, economic production. Maybe culture is more important than the means of production. And what he did is he came up with a way of basically subverting a conservative culture, Italy, that got, then got transposed here to Notre Dame University, which is not far away. The, the father of our current Secretary of Transportation was a Gramscian. He started off life as a Jesuit. The Jesuits are completely rotten right now. They should be suppressed now because they're promoting homosexuality and, and the American empire and all, all these bad things. Uh, so he left the Jesuits and then he became a disciple of Antonio Gramsci and he took over Notre Dame. He took over Notre Dame, became a, 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 had an endowed chair, never wrote a book. The only book he ever wrote was his, uh, his uh, uh, doctoral dissertation, which was totally stupid. And, uh, but he understood the mechanism whereby you could use culture, weaponize culture, to take over a conservative society, like Catholic societies, which are by nature conservative. Yes, I, I, I really think that is very important because uh, there is this idea that because uh, culture is related with frivolity or something like that, uh, traditionalists usually don't, don't study it. They, they are in other topics more related with big politics to say something, right? So, um, I, on another topic that we as Hispanists talk a lot is the, the this idea of the phenomenon of the Protestantization of the church. How uh, do you understand this phenomenon? Uh, since you have also covered this topic, uh, to what degree could one also think about the influence of Zionism and the revolutionary spirit of the Jews? In Catholicism, despite uh, the burden that this type of question contains under the vacuous and malicious uh, signaling of the term anti-Semite, uh, they, they have mentioned Julio Membie, Julio pa Padre right. Julio Membie, also right. was was uh, called uh, anti-Semite. He remembers just to, to finish the idea. This this article of George Orwell related. Uh, it, it says, uh, "What is fascism?" And he explains how this uh, idea of fascism doesn't have any meaning and it's just a way to degradate somebody and a dominant argument and you can't study the the critics the critic work or the the ideas that this author have I, I don't know what do you believe about this protestantization and about the relationship with Zionism and, and Jewish uh, revolutionary spirit. Okay, I think you're conflating two things. First of all, I don't think that Protestantization, Protestantization is an issue in the Catholic Church. I know there are people okay. who, who like the Latin Mass and they think that the, the, the Novus Ordo Mass is a Protestant Mass. That doesn't, I, I, it's not a serious argument, okay? And the, the reason it's not a serious argument is because Protestantism is dead. 
It's, it's not a force anymore. It's certainly not a force in the United States of America anymore. When I was in the 1980s, you had big uh, figures, public figures like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and all these televangelists who mobilized a large group of people. They're all dead and they have no successors because Protestantism has evaporated. Now, on the other hand, what has happened in American culture is the Jews have replaced the Protestants as the ruling class. This happened in the 1970s, okay, which is 1978 is when John D. Rockefeller III and Nelson Rockefeller died. And that's a symbolic year because that was the death of the WASP ruling class in America. 1976, Woody Allen, uh, uh, is on the cover of Time magazine as a great American uh, filmmaker. Woody Allen is Jewish. He's not. He's, he's Jewish American, if you want to talk that way. But to talk about him as an American is an exaggeration. What we're talking about here is the Jewish takeover of American culture. That is a serious issue. That is the most serious issue facing America right now. Israeli control over the American political system is the most crucial political issue in this country right now. And the proof that it's important is that no one is, no one is talking about it. Everyone's, all the politicians are afraid to talk about it. The only exception now was this Vivek, uh, this India guy, Vivek Swamirami, uh, who uh, won the debate basically without Trump uh, because he's the only one who said that there should be some limit on the money that we give to Israel. Well, this is unheard of. This is precisely the problem. You've got uh, people who are talking about the war in the Ukraine who can't use the proper vocabulary. They say, they use the word neoconservative. Well, the people in Washington are not conservative. They're liberal. They're Democrats. You can't say that what you're saying is when you use the word neoconservative now, it was a political movement in the 1980s. When you say it now, what you're telling us is that you're afraid to say the word Jew because people don't say that. You're, you'll be punished if you say the word Jew in a way the Jews don't like. This is directly related to the Catholic Church. It's directly related to Vatican II. Specifically, I cover this book in the uh, Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. The Jews tried to subvert the Second Vatican Council. The agent was a Jesuit by the name of Malachi Martin. They paid him money to subvert the church's teaching on the Jews. They, did, they wanted the church to say the Jews did not kill Christ. That's what they wanted. The bishop, 2,000 bishops are not going to agree to that because it's all over the gospel. St. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2 said the Jews are the people who killed Christ and they are enemies of the entire human race. So they try to placate the Jews. They come out with this document called Nostra Aetate. And in Nostra Aetate, the Catholic Church says, the church opposes all forms of anti-Semitism. What does that mean? They, they didn't define anti-Semitism. How can you make a statement like that and then not define it? Okay, anti-Semitism is a word that didn't exist until 1871. You had almost 2,000 years of the church dealing with the Jews, and they never used the word anti-Semitism because it's a racial word that has no meaning if you look at, let's say, the struggle in the gospel. That's two groups that share the same DNA fighting each other. It's not, the battle is not about DNA. It's about logos. 
Do you accept Logos or do you reject Logos? Do you worship the Logos incarnate or do you kill him? This is the fundamental divide in human history. It's uh, the, the struggle between the forces of Logos and the forces of anti-Logos. And the main force of anti-Logos in human history is the Jews. And if you can't say that, you're not part of the, you're not in the fight. You're not relevant. And that's, we have to go back, first of all, the Catholic Church has gone down this path of Catholic-Jewish dialogue that has been a disaster, a disaster for the Catholic Church. Alfredo Jalife Rame, that is a, a Mexican geopolitical uh, uh, analyst, uh, mocks about this term uh, anti-Semitism because he has an ethnic root. He's a Lebanese, Mexican Lebanese. So he, he say, why they call me anti-Semite? If I am Semite also, it's, it's something that doesn't have any sense. But I, I, For this matter, uh, I want to to take this this topic because uh, there there as uh, as far as I know there will be available your next book uh, the Holocaust narrative. Right. Uh, you want to tell us about, but uh, first of all, I want to establish some ideas. Some people think that if, if we talk about uh, Zionism and, and all these things, uh, like. <laughs> directly we are uh, uh, Nazis, no? And uh, what I am trying to establish in here is that the, the necessity, as I am trying to understand, of Catholicism, of having his uh, its own uh, uh, criticism or to, to Zionism and to, to Judaism, not related with, with Nazis. And one thing, for example, how about these Jews Like David Cole, this guy that made this documentary, David Cole in, in, in Auschwitz, or, or Norman Finkelstein that has this book, uh, The Holocaust Industry. What, what's going on with them? How, how there are also Jews that are not uh, related, or it's possible. I don't know what do you think about this idea of revolutionary spirit, uh, the, the importance of Catholic uh, perspective in, uh, to criticize Zion, uh, the Zionists. A will to power and trying to separate the commonplace of, of Nazi and neo-Nazis, no? like anti-Zionism. Right. Uh, there is something interesting in, in Nazi propaganda. In the, there's a poster in the 1933 that has uh, that say Hitler's camp und Ludwig's Hitler's battle and Luther's lesson are good defense for the German people. There are a, a lot of Nazis, even Catholic or something really strange mix up of Nazi Catholicism that uh, doesn't know this relation between Nazism and, and Protestantism. So this is the idea of, of your new book, uh, The Holocaust Narrative, the question of the, the uh, anti-Zionist uh, narrative of the Nazis, and uh, how about this, this uh, anti-Zionist, this Jew anti-Zionist like David Cole and, and Norman Finkelstein. Okay, so What uh, I, I was trained uh, in literature as a literary critic. And so I'm, I'm a kind of expert on explaining narratives. A narrative is basically a series of writings that establishes a story that becomes uh, the explanation for how you interpret the universe, how you interpret everything. And what happened, so we have a, a calamity like World War II. And one of the first books to come out Uh, was a book by an Austrian priest by the name of Johann Lenz. 
and the book is called Christus in Dachau. Dachau was the paradigmatic concentration camp at the, in the immediate period following World War II. It was the first concentration camp that was founded. It was founded in 1933. It existed the longest, and it made, was the paradigm, okay? And this priest was there because it was Catholics who were sent to Dachau. There were over 2,000 priests sent to Dachau, and Father Lentz was one of them. And he said that the, what we had to learn there was the lesson that God was teaching us that we were, why, why are we being punished like this? Why are we being persecuted? And it took, it was like a long meditation on suffering. And the priests basically were being subjected to all kinds of brutality. What the, the, the Nazis did, they emptied the prisons. They couldn't spare people for soldiers. They knew you couldn't trust these people. They emptied the prisons, put SS uniforms on them, and sent them to the camps where they tortured the priests because they hated God, they hated Catholicism, and they hated priests. And it got so bad that Lenz says, by August of 1942, if, we, if this had gone on for one more month, we all would have died. But he said on August 15th, God, the, the Feast of the Assumption, God answered our prayer. And suddenly the word came down from Berlin that you can't treat these people anymore. They have to work, so you have to uh, provide uh, food. You can let food packages come in. And more importantly, you can allow these priests to have a chapel. Well, this is God's providence leading the concentration camp. God is saying, your suffering has a purpose. I heard your prayer, and we will guide you out of this but you have to suffer for the time being. Now, that is the original narrative. This book was the standard work. It was the Catholic interpretation of what happened in the concentration camps. And what happened is it got hijacked. The Jews hijacked that narrative. That book came out in 1955. Dachau is the paradigmatic camp. In 1958, A.D. Wiesel's book, Night, came out. It was written by Francois Mauriac, a French Catholic, who translated his Yiddish memoir into good French. And at that point, the Jews who controlled the publishing industry hijacked the narrative and turned it into the exact opposite. So the message of Father Lance is we are being punished for atheism, Gottlosigkeit. Now, Elie Wiesel gets, uh, captures the narrative. He says God died at Auschwitz. So now it's the, that's the creation of the narrative of atheism and, and Jewish, Jewish suffering that they use to basically conquer Germany. Germany is still paying reparations for, for what happened there, but more importantly, they conquered the German Pope, Joseph Ratzinger, who, who then imposed, in a sense, the Holocaust narrative on the entire Catholic Church. Okay. Now, if, now, I can answer the Finkelstein thing. If you want to talk about Jews, the, let's, let's just respond to that, and I'll talk about Finkelstein if you want. No, I was. Uh, I, I will ask only if we are fine with the time, uh, Doctor Jones. I have. I have to. I, I can only go for an hour, so we're over an hour now. So, 
I've enjoyed our conversation, but I have I have to get off. There's other things I have to do. Okay, I, I really uh, desire that this book uh, uh, get soon uh, into your cultural awards uh, promotion, and we will it, be we will be uh, uh, we will stay we will stay uh, looking at, at it. Uh, only I want to read something that you write to finish the, this uh, encounter and. At the end, uh, René will say something to uh, finish this this program in Spanish for all our okay. friends. But this is a, a thing that I really like of your of your writings of Guadalajara when you were in Mexico, and this thing I, I believe is very important to say and uh, as a kind gest a gesture of uh, of yours, and I really appreciate it. It says. If there were ever a country that was the opposite of Nazi Germany and the Kudus clan, it is Mexico. Hitler promotes racial purity. Mexico is based on racial on race mixing, as Jose Alberto Villasana pointed on it in his explanation of the image of on the tilma in his talk of the history of Mexico, Our Lady of Guadalupe appeared as a mestiza, conferring on the Mexican nation, its status, and the capital of race mixing. As I am leaving the hall during the break of bath to, to bask in the warm Mexican sun, a man takes me aside and tells me that Mexicans are the cosmic race. The term comes from Vasconcelos, and it refers to what the clan would refer to disparagingly as race mixing. In addition to being the capital of race mixing, Mexico is also a nation that could not possibly implement the separation of church and state because it is a country that was founded by the Blessed Mother. No one can understand the real and opposed to the Masonic Mexico without an understanding of the role which Our Lady of Guadalupe plays in their creation of the Mexican nation. This I extended for all the Hispanic nations and Catholic nations also, and I really, I, I'm grateful, I, and I believe all of us are grateful to have you in here. Please uh, thank you, Dr. Jones, to be with us tonight. Thank you, you're welcome, my pleasure. Mr. Eugene, uh, thank you very much to come to Matices. Thank you, thank you for having me. I enjoyed our conversation. Well, I hope you, we, we will see you later, I hope. Comfortable. Yes, thank you. I'd be happy to continue this discussion. Okay, okay. bye, Mr. Eugene Michael Jones. Thank you. Um, thank you. Thank mientras you. despedimos a, a, a don Eugene Michael Jones, muchísimas gracias. Eh, entendí que tenía un compromiso, así es que vamos a despedirlo hey, hey. en este rato. Muchas to, gracias, Mr. Jones. Bien. Eh, bueno, yo, yo creo que ha sido una, una experiencia especial. Eh, antes de despedir el programa, nada más para, para nuestros auditores que en español quizá quedamos varios un poco colgados. No sé si es posible en pocos minutos que, que Edwin y tú, Daniel, que fuiste obviamente protagonista en esta entrevista, pudiéramos hacer como una suerte de, de, de repaso muy pequeño, sin perjuicio que como lo pusimos en el chat, la idea es que la, la divina inteligencia artificial nos ayude en, en YouTube y genere automáticamente los subtítulos en español. De no ser así, de no ser así, 
vamos a ver cómo el, el, el equipo de, de bots que tenemos dentro de Matice nos ayudan a, a traducir sí. y poner lo, los subtítulos. Pero independientemente de eso, eh, algo, la, la gran mayoría yo creo que igual se entendió en, en, en algunos temas, eh, sin perjuicio de lo cual yo quiero destacar el, el esfuerzo del canal de hacer este tipo de, de aventuras, llamémoslo de esa manera, eh, así es que públicamente Daniel te doy las gracias por el, por el soporte y, y, y creo que este programa habría sido prácticamente imposible de realizar sin tu ayuda y obviamente también con el acompañamiento de, de Edwin, así que yo les quería pedir nada más que, que podamos hacer un, un, un resumen cortito sí, claro. y, y cortamos, ¿les parece? Edwin, Daniel Sí, eh, adelante Edwin, lo que quieras comentar eh, de tus impresiones lo, lo, etcétera yo, Sí Sí, uno, eh, no, me pareció muy interesante, en particular un comentario que hizo ahí cuando Daniel le preguntó sobre la protestantización eh, de la iglesia. La iglesia. No es prostitución. Sí. <risa> la protestantización de la iglesia sí, sí, y él sí. lo, lo di, eh, ¿cómo se llama? Como que invirtió el asunto dado que para él los protestantes ya no existen como fuerza, sino que es más mm. una cosa al de, menos, de, de al los menos judíos. Del, al menos en Estados Unidos. Sí, sí, sí. Claro, y claro, es como más lo que lo dice como los judíos, así que, <ríe> ahí que no sé cómo decirlo. Y claro, y todas estas frases como que hay los neoconservadores y todo, son eufemismos para referirse a eso, y bueno, lo retrotrae a lo que es esta lucha de Dios y los que eh, se le acusa el, el crimen de, de Jesús, o pues, al final del Hijo de Dios, en manos de ellos. Y claro, el deicidio. Y claro que está operando a través de esto como desde el Logos y los que están en contra del Logos. Entonces, bien interesante ese punto que, que, que coincide. Y también el, el logo al final, a veces cuando uno habla como de creencia, yo creo que eso incluso es una contaminación anglosajona, porque en realidad la, la creencia católica no, no es creencia, en realidad es una claro. verdad revelada. Exacto. Y cuando una verdad revelada uno usa la razón. <risa> una verdad, no, no tiene que haber creencia aquí, eso es como el, claro, no, de no es como la creencia en, en, no. en la astrología, por decir. Claro, es como aquí tengo un, 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 una botella, decir, ejemplo, no, no creo que haya una botella, está la botella una verdad, entonces claro, esa es la forma de, claro. de operar. Ahí uno ve qué tan reveladas están las verdades para, para cada uno, pero claro, la forma de operar es racional, a través de verdad, entonces justamente eso está el logo. El, bueno, y lo otro que me, que me, como que me quedó en el tintero preguntarle sobre bien eh, la literatura en general, porque la literatura es, es uno de los puntos fuertes de la hispano-catolicidad o del, del imperio hispánico, fue lo fuerte. Ahí tenemos a Cervantes como, como, como el, el máximo exponente del siglo de oro. Claro, es como lo que quedó así fuerte, todavía vigente. Y claro, desde ahí la literatura ha sido una caída libre hasta Harry Potter. <ríe> y Hollywood y todo. Entonces, claro, eso también a veces... Se preguntó... Faltó, aprovechando que era un... Se, se preguntó porque sí. le, le, le dije que si había algún teólogo, algún filósofo, algún escritor hispano que en general eh, a él le llamara la atención. Y lo que él comentaba es que por su formación... Eh, anglo-protestante, en realidad todo lo que vio, vio fue fundamentalmente filosofía y literatura alemana, más la que él estudió, claro. sí. que él estudió en Estados Unidos, la literatura norteamericana, por decirlo de algún modo, o sea, que realmente él desconoce uh -huh. mucho 
de, de toda esta, esta literatura. Sí. Oye, sí. muchachos, yo quería hacerles un comentario a propósito de que esta semana estuvo, aprovechar de decirlo al aire, también estuvo en Copiapó y en Santiago, eh, nuestro amigo Javier Vidal, que va a ver este video cuando llegue a la madre patria. Pero yo le hacía un comentario que tiene que ver con que acá en Copiapó hay un sector que se llama Santa Gemita y que al lado se ha utilizado así espontáneamente como cementerio de mascotas, ¿ya? Cementerio de mascotas. Y al mismo tiempo, por lo menos acá en Copiapó, entiendo que en Chile también, en otros lados, Concepción, quizás en México también, se está fomentando muchísimo el tema de la cremación, ¿vale? De la cremación en humanos. Entonces se da la distorsión, antílogos, a propósito de, de, de lo que conversábamos con Eugene, que se está dando sepultura de entierro a mascotas, pero a los seres humanos no les estamos dando cristiana sepultura. ¿Cuál es el punto? Que en algún momento no vamos a defender la patria porque no vamos a tener pater o padres enterrados en esas tierras que justifican la defensa. No sé si me expliqué bien. Entonces, esa, 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 esa distorsión que tiene no, que, que, tiene con, que ver con no, esto. No sé que, si lo, lo podemos conectar, no, 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 pero, pero lo necesitaba decir. René, de hecho, está relacionado con lo que mencionaba este, Eugene sobre Eugenio Miguel. Mm. Eugene, Eugene Michael sobre la... Eugenio Miguel Juan. Sobre, sobre las esculturas este, que, que, que han sido cortadas las manos, por ejemplo, en Chile, ¿no? Esta mm. de, está un conquistador... Ah, no, en, Argen, en Buenos Aires, creo que digo, en sí, Argentina. Sí, sí. No sé si fue dijo sí. en Buenos Aires, pero que está este misionero franciscano y este conquistador y les cortaron las manos. Es, es parte de eso, o sea, simbólicamente, el, el, supongo que en ese tenor opera eh, eh, la desaparición del vaquedano, por ejemplo, ¿no? Este, como en, en esa ruptura con símbolos que tienen que ver con una raíz, una, eh, una nación y, y en el fondo una raíz, la, la, la madre patria, ¿no? La, la, la patria grande, por extensión, la madre patria, ¿no? Así es. Eh, y no sé, bueno, para agregar, o sea, en general lo que tratamos con los compañeros que no pudieron seguirnos completamente, pues tratar de entender eh, de, de y Michael Jones como su, eh, cómo él valora la hispanidad, la, la, la conquista, él, él valora mucho la misión jesuítica, lo mencionó en el Paraguay, uh -huh. en México. Y esto de masonería, si, 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 mi, si mi traducción mental no me falló. Sí, sí, sí. Sí, también la, la masonería, digamos, la expulsión de los jesuitas, urdida eh, uh -huh. desde, la, de, desde la masonería eh, en sentido amplio. Me hubiera gustado, sí. no, no había tiempo, de preguntarle esta idea de Franco que decía, bueno, eh, la, 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 la masonería en Estados Unidos, en Inglaterra... De Jaquín Bor, de Jaquín Bor. De Jaquín Bor, claro, claro. Jaquín Bor. Jaquín Bor. Oye, Edwin, Jaquín Bor es el seudónimo de Franco. Claro, que Franco claro, eso supuesto, no lo escribía no, como sí, Franco, claro, sino que claro, ocupaba el no, seudónimo no, de Jaquín Bor. No, 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 me equivoqué. De Jaquín Bor cuando Pero dice... Pero es Franco, no, igual es Franco. No, claro, claro. La masonería este, inglesa es buena en, en Inglaterra. Es buena, es muy buena, claro. Por El supuesto, problema para es que ellos. la masonería española sigue siendo buena para Inglaterra. ¿no? Entonces, yo creo que es una frase bastante lúcida, bastante intuitiva de, 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 de este Franco. Y bueno, yo, yo no sé si, si habría algo más que comentar. Es un personaje que, que habría que traer otra vez a, a Matices porque... Tiene muchos, muchas ideas muy muchos interesantes. Muchos matices y muchas cosas interesantes. Sí, muchas cosas. De hecho, no alcanzó la mitad de lo que yo tenía como pensado. Porque sí, es que, bien. claro, ahora, bien. ahora también comprender que es la primera oportunidad, sí. igual el, el tema del idioma, aunque Daniel, ustedes vieron que se peina, Edwin también. 
agradecer la conexión en vivo en el chat de la profe hispanista, le damos un abrazo grande a la profe hispanista porque ha estado también en el canal y ella es una difusora tremenda de la hispano-catolicidad, quien mejor que ella, ¿cierto? Y también a Patricio Lons, que estuvo acompañando de los, llamémoslos, bueno, los demás también, Gerardo, Mario, los que, todos los que comentaron. Queremos agradecerles la, la participación y nuevamente dar las gracias a Edwin y principalmente a Daniel por, por este yo, desafío que se cumplió. No, yo te agradezco también este, que el, ese como impulso que igual yo no había tomado este, me hubiera obligado a hacer algo que para mí era un reto y que para los hispanos quizás también sea un tabú que sea tener una conferencia con, en inglés y todo esto, pero que al final tiene que ver con también con nosotros, el... si en definitiva nos interesa a nosotros. No, no claro, y, y con esta parte de la catolicidad que uh -huh. puede establecer un diálogo también con, con pensadores italianos, eh, con pensadores polacos o eh, irlandeses, etcétera. Digo, incluso países, alemanes, incluso o, alemanes, o alemanes. Claro, aunque sean bárbaros. Católico, aunque sean bárbaros, lo, lo vamos a tolerar. <risa> la, la idea es, es también, cuando hablamos de hispanocatolicidad, también uh -huh. permitirnos un diálogo con personas que quizás su, 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 su patria no es la hispánica, pero también comparten es, es, esa fe y ese vínculo y esa concepción antropológica de la catolicidad. ¿no? Sin duda, y, y bueno, destacar también que en algún rato, una vez procesada esta entrevista, quizás podamos eh, masticarla con, 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 may, con mayor agrado. Nuevamente, sí. gracias. Eh, destacar un, un tema así eh, compartirlo con nuestros amigos que mmm, llegamos a y Michael Jones gracias a don Daniel eso, eso hay que decirlo ya por lo menos en mi caso personal no sé si Edwin ubicaba antes a, a y Michael Jones Eugene Michael Jones <coughs> lo que sí comentó no, no, no. en vivo la profe hispanista que él era es seguidora de y Michael Jones de de siempre, y bueno, y el y Lons que lo, lo había conocido en, en, en Buenos Aires así es que esperamos que le haya gustado esta conexión no desconozco si hay otras entrevistas en canales hispanos ah, de, ah, bueno, de... hay una página que se llama y Michael Jones en español tiene siete videos para quien sí, pero tradu tra claro, le ponen una, una eh, traducción, bueno, pero es algo o sea, eso está sí, bien. sí, sí, a lo que voy yo es que la, la pregunta es si un canal las, las de... como el nuestro no en hay. español no hay, pero también están no. las entrevistas a, 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 a su traductor en TV1, también por si gustan. Este, sí, 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 por Las supuesto. de Luis Álvarez Primo, nada más que es él el que, el que expone, no, no es Michael Jones. Sí, claro. También Así es que ahí no, nos anotamos una, una primicia. Sí. Realmente gracias, sí. un gusto de ver a Edwin. No, muy honrado por tener la confianza, René. No, no, por favor. Es muy buen entrevistado en canales de, es muy entrevistado en canales de Estados Unidos, ¿cierto, Mario? Sí. Así es. Bien, pues, eh, esto fue Matices, donde no todo es blanco-negro, espero que les guste y que nos sigan apoyando. Eh, seguiremos trabajando en, en, en esta línea. Un abrazo a todos, que estén muy bien y muy, muy buenas noches. Un abrazo, Daniel Edwin. Chau, chau. Chau, chau.